open up to um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, its clarity. And uh, Father, we, we know that we need to have ears to hear. And we do ask, Father, that that would be us this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there ought not to be, but there often is, a, a tension or a conflict between truth and action. Between truth and action. It ought not to be, but you can, you can separate out the two. And certainly in some of our academic institutions, they do that. So, you know, for example, you can go to university and you can study what's called pure mass. And what they mean by pure, I don't know how they came up with that phrase, but pure mass basically is, a, is the mathematics that takes pride in giving no thought whatsoever to practical relevance. And in that way, it's pure. Or you can go to university and study applied mass. You see, there's that kind of academic distinction between theory or truth and action. I mean, it's not just mathematics, in the sciences. You can go to university and study theoretical physics, or you can go and study engineering. Okay, you know where, my, where, where I lie on that way. Um, um, but it's not just academics where, where we've been willing to separate out truth and action. You actually see this in everyday people. You know, you meet people around, and you might be one of them. Who just love to think about things in theory. Now they love to discuss and debate and argue and they're all into abstract thinking and they don't really care if the things they're thinking about have any so-called practical consequences. They just, they just love debating the abstract ideas. But you meet other people and again you might be one of these people who, you know, you're just impatient with theoretical discussions. You want practical action. You just want to get on with it. And those people who just get all tied up in theoretical abstract thinking, you've got little time for them. But I want to suggest to you this morning that those two kinds of, you know, the extremes, aren't they? Those two kinds of people, those two approaches to life, they are flawed because the reality is that truth and action, they, it should be obvious that they belong together. Uh, and I think it's, um, it should be obvious that really, what you do believe has a deep impact on how you do act. Now, whether you are conscious or aware of that or not. So say, I'll just give a little example. Say, um, say you, do, you, you own a business and you run a business. Uh, if you run a business and think, you know, they've got all that theory of management textbooks and you can go and do those courses and get an MBA or whatever they're called that that can tell me how to structure my organisation. But look, I've got little time for that. It's just hot air. In my business, we just get on with doing it. And if you think that way, if you're going to run a business, I mean, that's fine. But the reality is you will still have your own theory of management, consciously or unconsciously, whether you fought through it or not, because at your workplace, as you, as you run the business, there will need to be some sort of organisation there will be some system of running a staff team and the way in which you organise the business will be governed by the way you think the business ought to be run. Whether you're aware consciously of that is beside the point, but the actions of you as a person in charge will be determined by how you think, whether you've thought through it or not. And it's not just business, isn't it? The way a mother will go about her actions as a parent, 
uh, uh, will, ha- will, will be driven by how she thinks about parenting. I mean, if you're a pet owner, the way in which you think about your animal will have a profound effect on the way you treat your pet and its behaviour. All I'm doing is making the point that, that, that truth and action, they actually belong together in every area of life and certainly they belong together in the Christian life. And I reckon you see this a number of times, actually over and over again in the scriptures. You actually see it in most of the New Testament letters, uh, particularly the ones that the Apostle Paul writes, even the one we're looking at today. Because if you read them closely, often you'll notice they fall into two halves. In the first half, there'll be a focus on the truth. And Paul will be talking about and explaining what it is that Christ has done and who he is and what kind of a saviour he is, what, what a Lord he is, what happened when he died, the fact of the resurrection, why he's returning. And, and the truth will be explored in some detail at the first half of the letter. But then when you come to the second half of the letter, this is where he begins to focus on action. Where he's basically saying, if what I've been teaching you is true, then these things... They just necessarily, they follow on. There are consequences for the truth in how you live and I want to spell them out for you. And look, if you were a person and, and uh, you just read one half of the letter, say you just read the second half of all of the letters in the New Testament, I mean, what impression would you get? You could easily get the impression, and it would be the wrong impression, because it's pretty superficial reading, but you'd get the wrong impression that Christianity is just a set of, a set of moral rules that you've got to follow. That's all it is. That would be a very wrong reading and a very superficial reading. Or say you did the other thing, and you just went and read the first half of the letters in the New Testament, and then you involved with the second half. What impression would you get then? you'd probably get the impression that Christianity is just a set of abstract doctrines and ideas and concepts with no practical realities. Again, you'd be wrong, wouldn't you? It'd be a very superficial reading. Both of those impressions would be wrong because they would result from a poor reading because actually truth and actions go hand in hand. They belong together and so the letters of the Bible are like this. And it's not just the letters of the Bible, isn't it? Jesus, how often is he on about hypocrisy? I mean, and what is hypocrisy other than saying one thing and doing another? Saying you believe this, but then your actions don't align with what you believe. Now, the letter of 1 Thessalonians that we're in is just like this. And in the first three chapters that we've already looked at and worked through, that's where Paul has been more focusing in on the truth of what Jesus has done. It focused on how the gospel truth came to the Thessalonians and how they recognized it as truth from God himself. But now we turn to chapters 4 and 5 and we get to the second half of the letter. The Apostle Paul is going to focus on now what just naturally flows on from the truth. What actions just just follow. Uh, Look at chapter 4 verse 1 and you can see how how this, this, this section starts. He says, have you got your Bibles open there? Uh, as for the matters, so as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. 
Notice as he starts his second half of the letter, he, he wants to speak about instructions. The word is literally, you know, it's more commands, instructions on how to live. You see, again, not only did he bring the truth, but he also, as he brought the word of God to them, gave them instructions that flow on from the truth. Instructions or commands by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Instructions about how to live, he says, in order to please God. Or literally, as uh, Murray pointed out to us, how to walk. How to walk in order to please God. Uh, and a fundamental aspect of the Christian walk, the actual basic principle driving it, did you notice here, is that when you walk, when you live, you're to be driven by an ambition, a desire to please God, is what he says. And I want to pause in this first verse and just go, that is a radical concept, isn't it? See, that when this truth of the gospel came to the Thessalonians, and as the gospel truth comes to us, it actually has the, this truth has the power to liberate you from living just to please yourself. And it has the power to transform that, to turn you into a person who actually now lives to please to please God. And this is the first and fundamental alignment between truth and action that the Apostle Paul wants to highlight for us. That if you grasp the truth of how great God is, if you grasp the truth of his grace and how generous it is, how, how enormously kind forgiveness is, if you understand who Jesus is and that he is the king and that he is a great authority, authority over all things for all time and he doesn't abuse that authority in fact he's a, he is the great king because he uses his authority so generously so lovingly so graciously that if in response to your understanding of just how sheer how the sheer greatness of god is then the action that so obviously follows from that is you go i'm, I'm going to change my mind i am not the center of my life I'm not the centre of the universe, that's obvious. I'm not even the centre of my life. And so it's not, not appropriate for me to go on living just to please myself. Now the serious goal in my life is now to live with an ambition to please God. And the Thessalonians got this. They got it when Paul taught them the truth and when he instructed them and they welcomed it. And here the Apostle Paul is saying, that, that's fantastic. We urge you, brothers and sisters, to do it more and more and more. And as the Apostle Paul urges them to do it more and more, he wants to speak to them about three areas of life in particular. Three very basic areas of life. Where if you have an ambition to please God and not just please yourself, then you will walk, live, just very very differently and the three areas he wants to talk about where truth and action need to be aligned are in the areas of sex work and death three very fundamental areas of of life sex work and death and he's going to talk to us and show us how knowing god transforms your actions in these areas now, there are three areas. Um, we're going to look at the first two today. The third, the third one on death, we will look at next week. 
uh, I, I think it's a topic that, that in many ways does deserve a little bit more time and care and sensitivity. And so we'll do that. So this morning we're going to look at the first two. The topics of, uh, well, let's look at the first one. The first one is this topic of sex and sexuality. And he starts by, look at verse 3 now, chapter 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. He simply starts by saying, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Got to love this verse, I reckon. I love this because it just sets so plainly for us what God's will is for your life. You know, many Christian people struggle. I think, what is God's will for my life? What does God want me to do? What is, well, it's so plain here. God's will is that you are sanctified. That is that word to be holy, uh, to be distinctly different is what the word is, is highlighting. And not just holy in a general way. He gets quite specific. He you know, God's God's will for you is that you are holy in the area of sexual activity. He says, you want, to know, you want to know God's will? God's will is this, that you should avoid sexual immorality. That is God's will for your life. Now the term there, or the word he uses for sexual immorality there, in the, in the, the word in the Greek, and you'll, you'll, you'll get a feel for it straight away, the word in the Greek is porneia. And it's not a difficult word, really, as you read the New Testament, to get a grip on what he means when he uses the word avoid pornea. Pornea covers all sexual relations before marriage. Pornea covers all sexual relations outside of marriage. Pornea covers homosexual behavior. That is pornea. The word itself is very clear. And so the meaning of what God is telling us here, I, I think, is simple. You want to please God? That's your ambition in life and your desire? That's fantastic. Avoid all sexual relations before marriage. Avoid sexual relations outside of marriage. Avoid homosexual sexual relations. And look, it's interesting that the Apostle Paul writes like this because he is writing, isn't he, to a church to a group of Christians there in Thessalonica. And I take it he wouldn't want to raise his subject with them unless it wasn't clear to him that there were Christians who were struggling with the issue of pornea or sexual immorality. There would have been people there in that church, as indeed there will be some people here in our church, people who are growing, who are maturing, who are being transformed by the gospel, yes, but still in their walk, it is still necessary to talk to them about sexual immorality and the need to say very clearly to them, avoid it. And I do want you to notice how straightforward it is here, and I'm emphasising this point. Please do notice that God does not say, hey, just redefine sexual immorality to fit in with your world's norms now. God does not say, redefine sexual immorality to just fit in with your own inclinations. He doesn't say that. He simply says, avoid it. And the obvious question that gets raised then is, well, how? How do I avoid it? Well, keep reading. That's what verse 4 and 5 go on to talk to about. He goes on to say, look at verse 4. He says, each of you, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable. 
not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Now, can I be honest with you? Uh, This is the trickiest verse of the passage today because where it says there, how how do I avoid it? And Paul says, well, each of you should learn to control your own body. That little verse there is the tricky verse because it could quite legitimately be translated quite differently as each of you should... you You want to control sexual morality? Each of you should learn to acquire a wife. Now that is tricky because it's 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 funny, isn't it? How the same Greek words could mean the two diff two what feel like two radically different things, uh, and we won't go into too many technical details. It's got to do with the language of of acquiring a vessel. That that's literally what it says there. Each of you should uh, acquire a vessel, and you've got to decide. What is, what is the vessel being talked about here? Is the vessel me and my body is being called a vessel and I've got to learn to acquire, control myself? Or is the vessel someone else? And he's saying to avoid sexual immorality, acquire a vessel, a, a, a husband, a wife. Which one is he meaning? And one of the reasons it's hard to choose which one he means is because in other parts of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul speaks of both of those ways being helpful in the area of avoiding sexual immorality. And so in 1 Corinthians 7, he will quite literally write, since there is so much pornea, he uses the same word, since there is so much pornea, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. So that, that, it's applied that way there in 1 Corinthians 7. Or you can go to Galatians chapter 5, where it speaks about fruits of the Spirit, and it will, he will point out that one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control, which can have great help in avoiding sexual immorality. Let's go, which one does he mean? I mean, I've, I've, I've got my preference in one way, but I really think it's, it's, it's just a preference. I'm not sure which one he means. But, evil, but both are there in the, in the other parts of the New Testament. And look, the point is, either way you take it, the end point is the same. Who are you going to please? Who are you going to be ambitious to please when it comes to sex? Don't just please yourself. Instead, please God when it comes to your sexual activity. Conduct yourself in a way that is holy and honourable. Your sexual conduct is to be honouring and not exploiting. You need to take selfishness, is what he's saying, out of sex. It is to be a behaviour within you that honours other people, not taking advantage of them. And so he says, look at verse 6. He says, and in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. And there he is highlighting for us that a deep truth we need to drink deeply of, that sexual immorality in all its forms... In all its forms, it is always the taking of something that you have no right to take. It is therefore, in this way, a wronging of someone, whether it's lust and perving at someone, or whether it's sex before marriage or adultery, whatever it is, it is always the taking of something that you have no right to take. Even if the other person is consensual in that, It is still a taking of something you have no right to take. It is always a pleasing of yourself and not a pleasing of God. 
And what the Apostle Paul is highlighting here, I hope you can see, is the actions that just flow naturally on from the truth. Because the gospel he brought to them, did you notice, he says the gospel truth is that your fellow Christians are brothers and sisters. Children of the same Heavenly Father. They, they are to be treated like family. Don't, don't take advantage and exploit them. Honour them. And in case you need to be reminded of more of the truth, as Paul goes here, about why you should take this very seriously, look at what he says in verse 6. He goes on to say, The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we have told you and warned you before. And it's very clear, isn't it? God is our judge. And Paul's saying, don't forget it. You may live in a world, like actually Paul lived in a world way back then, where people refuse to take these things seriously and just engage in sexual activity in a way to just please themselves. But he reminds us here that even though people around you don't take these things seriously, God takes these, these things very seriously. And if he takes them seriously, you better take them seriously because it is his will and it pleases him if you are sanctified and holy and avoid sexual immorality. And so at this point, while we're being reminded of the truth, I just want to pause and not forget, we'll forget the truth he's already articulated earlier in the book. That the gospel we are talking about here is genuinely the gospel of forgiveness. And so there is nothing that anyone in this building has, has done, nothing that they could have ever have done, that cannot be completely and wholly forgiven by God. Because he just, he just longs to forgive. There's nothing any of us here could have done, either right now or at times in the past, that isn't covered for us by the death of Jesus. No one ever need to despair before the grace of God for failures in the area of sexuality. But this is a reminder, isn't it, that you cannot grasp the gospel of forgiveness and still grasp onto your sexual morality at the same time. The truth of who Jesus is ought to flow into the actions of your forgiven life. And I think the actions, it really is radical, isn't it? Fancy that the gospel, fancy having anything that is powerful enough to take selfishness out of sexuality. Man, that is powerful. And that is the gospel we have. What a gospel it is. Now look, before we get to work and how the gospel actually, it is so powerful it can take selfish ambition out of work. We'll get to that soon. I just want to pause and stop and make a small comment to single people who are here today, people who aren't married. Always kind of take a deep breath when I do some of this stuff and what I've done to make it easy for me today is I've, in my, uh, I've got a study on uh, commentary on 1 Thessalonians at home written by a man by the name of John Stott. Uh, John Stott uh, is a Christian man, uh, a well-known Christian and he's a bachelor, never married and he can say things that bachelors can say and which is easier for him to say than me to say. So I'm going to read what he wrote about, about this. John Stott writes in his commentary, he writes, an additional paragraph, paragraph is needed for those of us who are single and therefore lack the God-given context for sexual love. 
What about us? We too must accept this apostolic teaching, however hard it may seem. Accept it as God's good purpose both for us and for society. We shall not become a bundle of frustrations and inhibitions if we embrace God's standard, but only if we rebel against it. Christ's yoke is easy, provided that we submit to it. It is possible for human sexual energy to be redirected both into affectionate relationships with friends of both sexes and into the loving service of others. Multitudes of Christian singles, both men and women, can testify to this. Alongside a natural loneliness, accompanied sometimes by acute pain, we can find joyful self-fulfilment in the self-giving service of God and of other people. All John Stott is highlighting there is that truth and action belong together, no matter what your life situation, single or married, none of us can take the hypocritical path of refusing to embrace the gospel without its consequences for sexual activity. All right. Now, the second of the three basic areas that Paul begins to address is the whole area of work. Remember, sex work, death. Um, now, before we actually look at the text here of, of what Paul, the Apostle Paul says about work, I think it's worth saying, just a few, uh, highlighting for you two, two errors, I think, that can be made so easily. Um, and, and before we get, uh, the word work here is actually, it's important to notice that it, it's not just going to cover formalised, paid work, career work, if you call it that. What Paul's going to talk about here is going to cover even less, you know, work that gets less recognition or formal recognition. It's not just talking about paid work. It's talking about volunteer work. It's talking about work in that broader sense, work at home even. And it's worth being aware of these two major problems first that can can happen with work. The first major problem is, of course, idolatry, where work becomes an idol. That is a danger. That, that situation where work becomes a very centre of some, someone's life. I think it's very easy in our world for that to happen. It's easy because work, by, almost by necessity, it takes up so much of our time and energy. It's often unavoidable to give it so much time and energy. Uh, and, and, we, and some of us actually have enormous responsibilities in our work. And so we, we do need to watch this carefully. We want to be, be, be aware of not just... Um, writing people off who are busy as, you know, workaholics and they've idolised work. I think you want to avoid that kind of just so easy tarring people with that brush. Um, Being very busy, even very, very busy and working hard and working long hours is not the same thing as having work as an idol. Uh, The way to assess if work is an idol, though, is to, well, to ask yourself a few questions. Uh, Work becomes an idol when everything else in life must give way to work. Is that happening to you? Is it the case that family always has to fit in around work? Is it the case that your involvement at church always takes second place to work? If everything in your life has to bow down to work, then that's when work becomes an idol, doesn't it? The second problem, and I find it fascinating that the words are so similar, uh, the second major problem you can have with work is idleness. Idol, idolatry and idleness, laziness. 
Um, and this is a situation where a person is unwilling to work or unwilling to work hard. It's not the situation where someone wants to work but can't find work. That's quite a different situation. But the situation, the other problem of work is, a, is, a, is an idleness. Maybe there's an unwillingness to do certain kinds of work or an unwillingness to turn up to work or a shoving of difficult work to others. This is the second problem with work. And with those two problems in mind, come with me to verse 9. Come with me to verse 9. It begins like this. Paul begins to talk to, about work by simply saying, now about your love for one another. And I'm just going to pause there. I think it's fascinating that as he begins his topic, that's how he wants to start. Because if you're going to get work right, you've got to have work in the context of loving one another. Or as brotherly love, as some of the older translations puts it. And he says about this brotherly love, look at verse 9. Now about your love for one another, about brotherly love, brotherly and sisterly love, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Paul's highlighting here that the love you have within the natural love that you ought to have within a family, between mum and dad, between brothers and sisters, that kind of closeness ought to be there among Christian people. That they belong to each other and uh, and have deep love and affection for each other like that. And of course, which means at times we will get on each other's nerves because that happens in normal families anyway. Indeed, there sometimes can be very substantial tensions between us. But there's this deep, we do belong together. We do care for each other. And Paul sees, he comments about this kind of love and he says to the Thessalonians, oh, I really don't need to write to you about that, which is code for I'm about to write to you about that. But it's, I don't really need to write to you about that because I mean, it's already happening in spades. Yeah, and, and it's not just within yourselves, like your immediate circle. You know, people from Macedonia and around the world are just saying how well you love others. And Paul goes, this is great. And he urges them to do it more and more. He's saying, we need to see more kindness, more generosity. We need to see more forgiveness. We want more honesty. We want more patience, more gener- uh, gentleness, more caring. And with, with that kind of comment in place... He says, let me tell you three areas, again, another three. Let me tell you three areas where you can love each other more and more. And I find it fascinating that when he, when even though he doesn't have to write about it, when he does write about it, the three areas he picks up on about how to love each other better have all to do with work. And he says, look at verse 10. Here's where he starts to pick it up. He says, yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you. Three things, three short things I think that you could easily miss, but three things that are urgent because he says, we urge you, he says, please make this your ambition You have to have these three things as a serious goal in your life. Firstly, that you'd make it a goal to lead a quiet life. Secondly, be serious about minding your own business. And thirdly, work with your hands. 
And I think you get three principles here about work that are just so different to the world around us. But that are the principles about work that flow naturally on from the truth about Jesus. Now, what do they mean? Let's take them one by one. What does it mean to have it as a serious ambition in your life to lead a quiet life? To lead a quiet life means to be content with having a low profile. I think it's, 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 it's opposed to the person who is driven by the need to make his or her mark. It's opposed to the person who is driven by the need to make an impression, to be the person of influence. A contented life, mind you, is not an idle life, a lazy life, but it is a life where you can be freed from the personal self-centered ambition that dominates so many in the workplace. Freed from that so you can care for others. And Paul's saying, this is the mindset you, you ought to have. So make it your ambition, he says. And so can I personally urge you today, make it a very serious goal in your life to live a quiet, contented life so that you are free to love and care for others. What a different approach to work that is. The second one he says is, I urge you, make it your ambition. Please set this as a serious goal in your life to be someone who minds your own business. And it's fascinating that this is a phrase we use so much in our world, don't we? You know, we love to tell people to mind your own business, particularly if they're getting their nose in my affairs. I mean, you can mind your own business, thank you very much. We love that phrase. Um, but because we use it lots, sometimes the, the biblical meaning can drift a little bit because we've just used it without really thinking through what, how the Bible used it in the first place. Uh, to get a, a, a good sense for it, let me give you a very literal translation of the words here. The verse literally says, make it your ambition to do your own things, is what it says. Meaning, to attend to your own responsibilities. Not to be meddling in others' responsibilities. Uh, in some ways, it's a simple way of saying to you, you know, you don't have to rule the world. Mind your own business. Attend to your own responsibilities. And it's a reminder here that under God, we, we each have our own sphere of responsibility. You ought to be aware of what that sphere of responsibility is. God has got you in a situation where you have responsibility, your own things to be responsible for. And in that sphere of responsibility, you are to care for and provide for the things you are responsible for. And the command here is focus, on your, focus your ambitions, focus them on your given sphere of responsibilities. Not someone else's, but yours. Don't neglect them. Don't turn a blind eye to some parts of the sphere of your responsibility because, hey, you don't enjoy doing that kind of work. No, 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 no. Make it your ambition to do your own things. Now, we really do need to heed this, I think. Uh, churches, people in churches need to he heed this. 
One of my observations in the world, and maybe you'll agree or disagree, but one of my observations in the world is that very often that those who do meddle in the affairs of others, they, they don't do it because, they, gee, they've been so diligent in their own affairs that they've done all their responsibilities, so now they have time to, do, to, to give to, to your affairs and your responsibilities. No, that's not true. My observation, that's not what happens. Very, very often, people who meddle in the affairs of others get time to do that precisely because they are neglecting to attend to their own things. And so when they meddle, not only do they take responsibility where they've got no responsibility, they are irresponsible with the very things that they are responsible for. And so it is a disaster, no matter which way you look at it. And so heed this word very carefully. I urge you, God is telling to us, make it your ambitions. Please align your actions with the truth of the gospel and make it a very serious goal in your life to do your own things. Now, the third principle he's got here, governing work, is that we are encouraged here to make it your ambition to work with your hands. Now, it may be situation-specific here. What I mean by that is that it may be that the Thessalonian believers were by and large manual workers. And many commentators suggest that, actually. And back in society back then, people in manual labour were often looked down upon as it was demeaning work. But you know, it's beneath the elite of society to, to do that kind of manual work. And if that is the case, then as Paul says, make it your ambition, the work of your hands here, he's correcting that and saying, don't neglect your work, get on with your work, and don't think that there's anything demeaning about working with your hands. That could be what he's saying. However, I think the emphasis here is actually just, just on working, getting on with it. Because... Any work really involves something about using your hands typically, even if you're sitting at a typewriter right on the keyboard. Uh, and I think what he's urging us here is get on with it and do it. Certainly don't use your Christian faith as an excuse for idleness. Don't be someone who goes, oh, you know, Jesus is coming back, so, uh, so why bother? And don't just go, oh, there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. So it's just not worth putting much effort into the, the current creation. Don't use your Christian faith as an excuse to bludge. Paul said, get on with it. And as he says, get on with it, I want you to notice there's no, um, there's no demeaning of work, but there's no glorification of it either at the same time. The, uh, work is something that is to be done, and those who believe in the truth and who love one another will get on and do it. Not overvaluing it, not undervaluing it, but loving others through it. Get on with it. And of course, having highlighted those three principles governing work, the Apostle Paul then gives the reasons why it's important that you make these things a serious ambition in your life. And he says in verse 12, he says, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. You see, the way in which we work is to make an impression. The honesty of a person who lives a quiet life. 
the diligence of a person looking to attend to their own things. The person who does not work with the ambition to conquer the world and to climb the top of the tree and control everyone else's business. That kind of worker, gee, they make an impression. There's something very attractive about that kind of worker. I'd love to have that kind of worker work under me or that kind of worker work over me. We all all appreciate that kind of worker. And that kind of worker opens gospel opportunities and that's one of the reasons to work this way. But notice the other reason there is not to be dependent on anybody and you don't want to misunderstand that. That's not talking about pride, that I'm so independent, I don't need help from anyone. No, it's not talking about that. What's on view here is love, brotherly love, that if we're going to be in a position where we can ease the burdens of others, we need to be in a position where we're not, on a, not ourselves a burden on others in the same time. Now, I just want to come back and conclude. where we started truth and action boy they belong together has the gospel truth transformed you has the truth transformed you and so taken selfishness out of sex for you so you honor one another has the gospel taken selfish ambition out of work for you so that work is not the measure of your life Friends, make it your ambition to please God, not please yourself, to live a quiet, contented life, to fulfill your own responsibilities and to do your work. Let's pray.